Everyone and welcome back to Butter with That. Uh, this is me, Dave, and me, and me, and me. No, no, no! Stop it! Stop it! We're not doing that again. All right. Um, uh, I'm joined by my I'm joined by my actual co-hosts this week. So going around the horn, uh, I'm very pleased to be rejoined by Christine, Connor, and Sam. Uh, we're all back in full form and all ready to discuss a very fun theme for uh, this month. So uh, before we get into that. Uh, so relieved to be rejoined by you folks. How is everyone doing? Has anyone seen anything cool lately and anything they want to report back on? I feel like all of a sudden there are so many movies out and I haven't seen like any of them. Probably everything everywhere all at once is the only recent release I saw, which I talked about a few weeks ago, but not movies, but I finished Moon Knight on Disney plus got all caught up. Uh, I know Sam and I have been talking a lot about it, but big fan. I like Oscar Isaac a lot. It's a lot of fun really see any really good actor just play multiple roles off of himself i think it has a really good cast the effects later on in the series are really good and i think six episodes is the perfect length for these kind of like marvel limited run series kind of get like a double movie and then it's over then it overstates welcome felt complete and i'm excited to see where they take the character going forward you know it's interesting connor that you mentioned that there's so many good movies out right now because it's like when I sit down to think about all the options I have, TV, movies, all the great content out there. And then when I land on watching Murder by Numbers on <laughs> Movie Orca, I wonder like what has become of my life. I remember this movie being always on TV. Uh, if folks haven't seen Murder by Numbers, it is a Sandra Bullock classic with a young Michael Pitt and Ryan Gosling. <laughs> and it's bad, but like it's bad in some very fascinating ways. Um, I highly recommend it uh, as a sort of little time capsule of like, it's either late 90s, early 2000s depictions of like, like young, like delinquency, like what drives privileged boys to like commit murder and not feel remorse for it. And then... Sandra as like the uh, the detective uh, wrestling with her own past and traumas and demons. And it's uh, it's interesting. So while there's some great content out there, folks, I have nothing to say about it because I'm at home watching Murder by Numbers. <laughs> Yo, I fucking loved Murder by Numbers back in the day. I would be dying to know what you think of this, having... Like if you recently watched it, you know what? I'll have to go back and I'll, I'll have to re- like rewatch it again. But I do know it made me very aware that if I was ever going to commit a murder, to make sure the shoes that I purchase are d- not my size and then also with cash. You know, these, these shoes. I'm so glad you brought up the shoes, Sam, because like they're these designer Italian shoes, and they're they occupy such a huge right. space in the movie they're called like vigies and like they're interviewing ryan gosling and he's like not the vigies or like the v like vilies i uh reported those missing and made a huge scene in the principal's office i i have to have my italian leather boots oh god and his style all of their styles are peak peak 
like I don't know 1999 or whatever please Sam please watch this so that we can talk about it (laughs) while it's in your memory okay I will literally do that tonight because I do remember loving it so much I also remember you know how sometimes you associate movies with like like things you were doing at the time or like things that you were like maybe like mildly obsessed with so for me that was uh Pepsi Blue do you remember that no remember Pepsi Blue the soda well anyway I a lot of it and a lot of white cheddar popcorn as I watched that movie. So, like, I have very clear. So, maybe I'll go get some white cheddar popcorn and, like, watch that movie. That sounds great. Please. Looks like it's on <laughs> HBO right now. I'll have to check it out. Well, I, okay. So, also, I finished Moon Knight, loved it. Uh, anyone who was critical about it beforehand, I hope that they're all, like, eating their fucking words and, and eat, eating crow because it's amazing. Love. Murder by Numbers. I'll watch that. I'll rewatch that again. I'm watching the show called We Own This City. And it's a new show on HBO. It's about basically the 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 gun task force in oh, Baltimore. Oh, right. I heard about that. Yeah. And it's done by the same people who did the fucking wire. Mm-hmm. And everyone who ever acted in the wire is in this goddamn fucking show. Uh, which is fine. Like they're all great actors, but um, there's this one actor who's from Philadelphia and I fucking knew he was because the way he pronounced certain things, I was like, you know what? You know, you're a Philadelphian. Like when you finally, you can sniff out others. You're like, I know that accent. I know it for like no good reason too. Cause it's Baltimore, but there are very similar areas of accents between Baltimore and, and Delco. I have come to find. Well, Speaking of accents, uh, we are going to be hearing quite uh, quite a few Australian accents this week. We are uh, shifting into a new theme. This uh, theme that we've recently decided on is uh, pretty open-ended, but I think pretty appropriate to this week's episode, and that being our desert theme. Uh, so uh, just in time for things to heat up here in Pennsylvania, we are going to be bringing you uh, some pretty toasty movies, uh, some pretty hot ones, and some that we've really been looking forward to for a long time. The one that we're discussing this week, as a matter of fact, is one that sprung to mind immediately when we first started talking about doing this podcast. So three and a half years later, I guess that is a proof of my procrastination, but we're finally there. Today, we're talking about 1981s. Depending upon what country you're in, either Mad Max 2 or, as it's known here in the States, The Road Warrior. One of my favorite movies of all time and probably my favorite film of my favorite film franchise of all time. So one that, uh, as I said at the top, I've been looking forward to for a really, really long time. Uh, As I understand it, this is everybody's first time seeing this beyond me. Is that correct? Yes. That is correct. Big true. Big true. Very cool. And we have all also seen uh, Road, or excuse me, Fury Road uh, as well, and done an episode on that, that a while back, I believe, episode 101. So you can uh, go back and uh, retrace our steps and, and check that out if you like. As far as Road Warrior is concerned, for those who aren't familiar, it is the second installment in the Mad Max series uh, that championed and uh, designed and envisioned and written and directed by genius director George Miller. He has uh, also been responsible for Babe and Babe Pig in the City, and the Happy Feet series, so a pretty eclectic catalog, as we've discussed, of his in the past, but uh, definitely a real standout director to me, specifically for this movie. This movie follows Max Rokotansky, our titular Mad Max, 
as he navigates the wasteland after the death of his wife and child in the first film. He, in wandering the wasteland, uh, comes across this encampment, this compound full of people that are drilling and, uh, and collecting their own gas in a time when gas is a precious scarcity in the wasteland. And so that being obviously a pretty important development. Uh, and he basically helps these people escape that situation as they're being besieged by marauders who want to overpower them and uh, take all the fuel that they have. Pretty great movie and uh, a lean 90 minutes. Uh, I believe, well, actually it's about 95, I believe, but yeah, a pretty, a pretty quick and a pretty peppy ride as we're used to if you're a fan of the Mad Max franchise. So uh, before we get into kind of a rundown of this movie, does anybody have anything they want to say off the top, uh, this being their first go around with this movie? Yes. So forgive me. I've only seen Fury Road and now this. Is it, is he Mad Max because, okay, so his family dies and then he's just angry? Or is he Mad Max because like the, the, the deaths drove him to like a, like a mental break and he's like mad in that way? Or both. I would imagine, is- yeah, it's probably a bit of both. Because, okay, now I ask because in this movie and also in fucking Fury Road, he's the sanest of the bunch. And I, he's not so mad anymore when you put him up with like fucking bikini guy. Like, what's it? Wait, no, Lord. The Lord Humongous. The Ayatollah of Rock and Roller. (laughs) Right, right. So he's, he's average max. That definitely doesn't. (laughs) the same ring to it but like he's not like i get it but i'm also like be be a little bit more accurate but i loved it though but anyway anyway you bring up a great point sam it's like sam or max is this character whose eyes like we are looking at this universe through mad max's eyes because he is the road warrior it's it's just one chapter on a long series of adventures that he's taking so he seems to in many ways be the most even keeled character, even though he has his sort of like gruff, you know, loner characteristics uh, to him. But it is interesting that compared to the many of the other characters we meet, he does seem the sanest and most even keeled um, and and can think under pressure and has a lot of uh, good ideas and tricks up his sleeve. Something I so I had never seen this. I'd seen Mad Max, the first Mad Max, which. Oh, nice. Yeah, um, which feels different in that there isn't as much, I would say, wild action. It's definitely more like setting the stage of what happens. To, well, okay, but I it, it felt a little slower than this. Sorry to this the point. listeners, I made a face. <laughs> it feels a little bit like a slower, slower pace than this second movie because we get more of like what happened to his wife and his daughter or like his kid or baby. And no, I don't know if daughter, just baby. Um, anyhow... Something I was thinking about at the beginning of this movie is a lot of it feels almost like a silent film. There's very little dialogue. A lot of the scenes are short and feel like little chapters or little vignettes that sort of set up the situation, set up the main characters. And uh, you don't really get much dialogue until Mad Max and the gyro captain really come up against or like uh, encounter the first uh, civilization who have like dominated the oil 
Uh, I'm having a hard time concentrating because Sam's cat, who is so adorable and looks like my cat, <laughs> is just sitting in, in her frame. I'm so sorry. It's just she looks better than I do right now. So I'm trying to like <laughs> She looks help so good. Phoebe. Hi. Hi, sweetie. Well, Christine, to your point, there is uh, a lot going on in uh, Miller's mind and uh, as far as how he shaped this movie as in terms of that silent film and uh, restricted dialogue vibe. So you're you're uh, onto something early there. The score also adds uh, a lot at the beginning, uh, a lot of energy to the scenes and communicates things that might have been communicated through dialogue, but it is through like uh, an like interesting uh, musical and score moments. And I totally agree with you know, everything that's been said so far. And- it was interesting watching this so close to Waterworld because, I've, yeah, I guess like paper, if you write some stuff on paper, it's similar, but this blows Waterworld out of the water in like uh, almost every single imaginable way. Like, I don't think there's one second of Waterworld that is better than the Road Warrior. Um, jet skis uh, being like, Hidden under the water and launched on ramps? Come on, Connor. That got you a little bit, right? Uh, how about the end of the movie when the two trucks hit each other and they explode? Yeah, that was pretty dope. <laughs> yeah, and we'll be getting to that among all sorts of other things. So I I could just shut my eyes and watch this movie. So I guess we're going to uh, to go through some of the major beats and, uh, and kind of discuss standout moments. To give you some context, uh, the film kind of begins with an introduction provided by a dying older man as he recounts his past uh, and the man who became the mythic road warrior. And a lot of the beginning of the film is sort of a pastiche of different like historical footage uh, that's been sewn together to create this narrative with what this this unseen narrator is describing. It also summarizes a lot of the original Mad Max film, which uh, just for context, uh, that came out in 79 in Australia. It was made for a budget of $350,000 and went on to gross $100 million. So kind of a towering success. This one, arguably a little bit less so. This was uh, $4.5 million and ultimately grossed $36 million. So, uh, so in some regards, a lesser sequel, but I think it definitely surpasses the original film. And uh, that's the dominant opinion nowadays. Anyway, this introduction that we get is uh, is pretty captivating and one that I really like. So I'm just going to plow through that really quickly if, if folks don't mind. And that would be, my life fades. The vision dims. All that remains are memories. I remember a time of chaos, ruined dreams, this wasted land. But most of all, I remember the road warrior, the man we called Max. To understand who he was, we have to go back to another time, when the world was powered by the black fuel and the desert sprouted great cities of pipe and steel. Gone now, swept away. For reasons long forgotten, two mighty warrior tribes went to war and touched off a blaze which engulfed them all. Without the fuel, they were nothing. They built a house of straw. The thundering machine sputtered and stopped. Their leaders talked and talked and talked, but nothing could stem the avalanche. Their worlds crumbled. Cities exploded, a whirlwind of looting, a firestorm of fear. Men began to feed on men. And this is one of my favorite lines of dialogue of all time. On the roads, it was a white line nightmare. Only those mobile enough to scavenge, brutal enough to pillage would survive. The gangs took over the highways, ready to wage war for a tank of juice. And in this maelstrom of decay, ordinary men were battered and smashed. Men like Max... The warrior, Max. In the roar of an engine, he lost everything and became a shell of a man. A burnt-out, desolate man. A man haunted by the demons of his past. A man who wandered out into this wasteland. And it was here, in this blighted place, 
that he learned to live again. Wonderful introduction. Fucking awesome. Uh, it does such a great job of pairing this fictional reality with like archival historic footage and also melding it into the black and white version uh, to suit, to match it um, with the original Mad Max film and some of its more like iconic crashes and pretty effectively summarizes the entirety of the first film and everything leading up to this in like the span of two minutes, which is really impressive. Uh, and it's so colorful too it's sort of it made me think of the opening crawl in star wars movies it's kind of like set the tone especially i feel like the first probably two are like the most effective of like kind of setting up where we are especially episode four and especially with the visuals starting of you know tiny rebel ship big star destroyer flying over so i think in a similar way this is like providing context and coloring the world and applying visuals as well and catching audiences up on kind of what we need to know and why the world is the way that it is and it also sets up for a great reveal by the end because you have the voiceover introducing the story. And then to jump quickly to the end, you come to understand that the feral child is actually the one top telling this story as an old man uh, who has seen a bunch, lived this wildlife, but also had one encounter with the road warrior. And it it ties that sort of arc really nicely. And it also adds to the mythos of the road warrior, especially in this post-apocalyptic universe where stories are probably told orally and passed down. And it's 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 this sort of storytelling. Yeah, just this uh, wonderful chronicle and story uh, that's probably added to this world's mythos. It's so interesting because like, even with Fury Road, I didn't, I felt like I didn't need any context whatsoever. I'm just like, cool. It's like a, a barren wasteland. We're fighting over oil, gas, like whatever. That makes sense. You know, I get it. But having it in this one, you know what? It was kind of nice. I didn't need it. I was totally down. But it does. Not that it makes things like easier to understand or more palatable. But you're like, you know what? Thank you for adding lore to this. I like it. And I, since we've been talking a little bit about Waterworld, the exact opposite to Waterworld, where the whole time, <laughs> how the fuck, what happened? How long has it been? I like missed that it was like 500 years. I don't know where the fuck I was, but like clearly not paying attention to that. So, you know, it just goes to show you like immediately what is a catch and then and, and what isn't. I, I didn't need it for the Road Warrior, but I needed it for Waterworld. Well, Waterworld does open with like a couple sentences of voiceover, and you're like, and now they live on a Waterworld, 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 <laughs> and you're like, it, that's that's a horrible example of opening your movie with voiceover narration. So once again, I don't I don't know if we're gonna be bouncing back and forth a lot between these movies, but um, there's certainly like everything that Road Warrior does well. It seems like Waterworld uh, flops. I wonder uh, if that had to do with the way the movie was uh, marketed and rolled out. Did any did the first Mad Max have uh, any U.S. release? Had anyone in the United States seen Mad Max, the first Mad Max? That is sort of why it's there. Um, yeah, the first Mad Max film was a smash hit in Australia and was a really big hit elsewhere internationally. But in the United States, it was largely ignored. So with this rebranding and this real like aggressive international marketing effort by Warner Brothers to get this sequel scene, because it was such an elevated sequel, 
uh, to the first original material, they felt it necessary, I believe, and so did Miller for that matter, to kind of provide some backdrop and and sort of give you a very cursory idea of what the first film had been and the time that has passed. Um, I'm so embarrassed. Is Mel Gibson Australian or is he American? Who he's Australian. Is he? Well, he's both. He was born in New York. I didn't That's know true, that. Yes. He spent the first 12 years of his life in like upstate New York or something. And then his parents moved to Australia. And then Mad Max so was the what, first film. So what is his accent then? I'm sure he can kind of like, turn it on and off a little bit. That bastard. You know, something that was like definitely disappointing for me as a human being uh, was how hot Mel Gibson is in, in this movie. Smoking oh, hot. God, Like a smoke show. So true. You know, I'm sure we'll get deeper into Mel Gibson and Max, but I I think Mel Gibson could be a really good actor. He can as be, problematic yeah. of a person as he can be. Um, and I think he really shines um, in Road Warrior. And I think he's great in science, too. I think that's another really good Mel Gibson role. Christine, I know you love science. I couldn't believe when I was looking at Mel Gibson's stats that Signs was his highest grossing movie I was like, there would like, what about like the lethal weapons? What about like all of this? But apparently that was like his highest grossing film. Maybe fact check me or I'll fact check myself throughout this episode. But that really like surprised me. But yes, I agree, Connor. He's great in the signs. Well, we shift out of this voiceover into the now. Uh, This frames us in what's currently happening in the world of Road Warrior. This Uh, launches us into this really awesome first chase, which is Max uh, sort of presumably like scavenging supplies or fuel. And as he's going, he is uh, beset upon by these marauders, this group of vehicles, and in particular, uh, a motorcycle driven by Wes, who is a character that we'll get to know uh, pretty well, played by Vernon Wells. Uh, You may remember him from our Commando episode as Bennett. Let off some steam, Bennett. Same guy. So as, as uh, Max is driving, he pretty aptly is able to drive these vehicles off the road. There's a friendly fire incident where Wes is shot with an arrow. And after Max has toppled the vehicles and he finds a large uh, abandoned 18-wheeler, a large big rig, uh, and starts going about siphoning uh, some gas from one of the crash vehicles and also looking into whether or not that has any gas, Wes, this biker, one of the marauders, taunts him with this wordless scream back in his direction before... Uh, turning around and going off the other way, leaving Max to his own devices. A lot of stuff about this scene that's incredible. Uh, these car crashes are totally awesome. And all uh, in league with the rest of the Mad Max franchise, all practical effects. One really great detail is that when we shift from the original voiceover, the sound itself shifts from mono to stereo. So you can actually hear the whoosh of Max's V8 interceptor shifting gears. Max has a cute little dog, an Australian sheepdog, which is by his side with this adorable red bandana. Uh, there's a kind of silent communication between he and Max. He kind of shuts off the V8 to conserve fuel and then gives this dog a knowing glance. And the dog instinctively darts to the back of the car, his little area with hay for a bed, uh, as if trained to recognize that Max needs focus right now. Uh, after this, also, when he investigates the big rig, uh, he finds a corpse, a bloated, rotting corpse that just falls out of it and lifts up what is this tiny little box, which turns out is a music box. And as he, as he winds it, it plays the happy birthday song. 
must have been pretty expensive. And it's one of the only times throughout the entire film that Max smiles. And it makes you wonder how long it's been in, in this world since anyone has heard music being played. Any thoughts on that opening chase? That's when I texted the group chat. I was like, I'm obsessed with this movie already. So I was like, yeah, mindless violence. I love it. Um, but I, the, what's, what, who? The, the, Wes? Who? What's his Wes. name? Wes. Wes. W-E-Z. Yeah. What a, what a guy. What a character. <laughs> you knew he was like a prick and you were going to see him again. You're like, I, I see this, but like the, the, like, like rockabilly kind of like style they all have is really cool. But like, where do you get the hair dye? <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's one of the last surviving resources. It's all, it's all abandoned gas stations and Spencer's gifts. This movie hands down has one of the cutest movie dogs ever. It's an adorable dog. It doesn't have a name. Also, this dog was rescued from um, euthanasia. The dog was about to be put down and it was rescued from the pound for the picture. And after the movie, uh, it was uh, actually raised and adopted by one of the cameramen. So dog had a nice, literally the role of a lifetime for this dog. <laughs> Not unceremoniously shot as he was in the film. Yeah. He friggin' survived a truck collision and like triple roll. And then the movie has the audacity to then just like kill him off by just being shot off screen. <laughs> it's Chekhov's dog. If you meet a dog in the first act. <laughs> Yeah, www.thatdogdefinitelyfuckingdies.com. <laughs> Wait, no, but like, does the dog die? I had to go there real quick at the very beginning because I was like, oh, I don't trust this. And it was yeah. oh, a disappointment. Yeah. yeah, we're going to get to that at some point. We lead out of this chase, just some scene setting. And also uh, the last, final shot of this, this sequence, Max peeling off into this surreal purple sunset. Gorgeous stuff. And like that—that that is kind of an interesting thing too that I'll return to when we discuss this V Fury Road because I know that's going to come up at the end. I think this movie does make very interesting but sparse use of color as far as stylization, as opposed to the impressive homogeny of Fury Road as far as color saturation and palette. Um, so that'll be highlighted as we continue. But Max, uh, Max continues wandering and he finds this mysterious vehicle. It's a, a, a gyrocopter. Sam, you were pretty puzzled by this. And and so am I, frankly. It's a really strange vehicle. It's it's sort of like a helicopter without the shell, almost. And as he comes across this, it's, it's uh, perched upon by a snake, which Max pretty handily uh, overpowers. But then just as he does so, the gyro captain buried in the sand just nearby emerges with a crossbow. And basically holds Max hostage saying that, well, you know, I've uh, never seen someone beat the snake, but now you're going to have to give me all of your fuel. That's sort of the whole idea of the wasteland. It's, it's uh, about finding and maintaining leverage, uh, which is something we'll be talking about, especially as it relates to the gyro captain throughout. Uh, the gyro captain uh, goes to have Gibson uh, defuse his uh, bomb because speaking of leverage, Max has cleverly rigged his fuel tank to explode if anyone else tampers with them. But just as he's doing this, uh, his dog darts out and disarms the gyro captain and the gyro captain quickly becomes Max's hostage. Uh, any thoughts on Bruce Spence as the gyro captain? Bruce Spence, real quickly, by the way, is an actor you may have seen in other things. You may have seen him in, uh, for example, Revenge of the Sith, Star Wars Episode Three, as Tion Medon. Uh, that the character that has like blue corduroy patterned skin almost. 
kind of a tall, lanky-looking guy. You might remember that from that. Or you might more uh, quickly remember him as the mouth of Sauron from the extended Return of the King movie. So Bruce Spence, an actor with a borderline freakishly long figure. I think great example of like unlikely duo has to team up. Um, I really enjoy their dynamic throughout the film. And we get great setup for the bomb in the car later that I, I forgot about until it like became very relevant in a later scene, which we'll talk about. But mm-hmm. um, definitely knows how to make great use of time and pacing of this film of like what needs to happen, what do we need to know, and then when it's time to move on to the next thing that's got to happen. I had some questions about why the the gyro captain was hiding in the sand. Was he uh, was he working on something? Like, does he booby trap his helicopter with snakes while he's maybe, I don't know, working under the sand or sleeping, hiding out from the sun? Or was he is he just constantly waiting there for somebody to come along and try to hijack his helicopter? That's exactly what it is. He's lying in wait for someone to come by with presumably with fuel that he can use as they approach this this device, this gyrocopter of his, and then are taken out by the snake, which is why he points out, never seen a man beat the snake before. And why later on, when they return to the gyrocopter, when it's parked there, another person has been killed by the snake so that they're able to harvest their gas. He also does not treat that snake really well. When he's like fighting with it, like against the dog, he's like whipping it around like it's a fucking slinky. And it's like, okay, (laughs) these things are working for you. You better treat them nicely, please. It does remind me of a friend's comment in uh, Cave of the Crystal Skulls, that awful Indiana Jones movie, when uh, Harrison Ford throws Shia LaBeouf a snake to pull him out of the quicksand. And my friend just shouted in a packed theater, that can't be very good for that snake. I am terrified of snakes, but boy, I, I advocate for their humane treatment. Yeah, yeah, they deserve it. Also, a lot of uh, a lot of the stylization of this character, by the way, Bruce Spence, I really love. He's got um, an overcoat, but he's got like, you know, these aviator goggles and like old leather helmet. He has this sort of like matching, matching like purplish pink scarf and like Converse shoes. His pink and that's something- Converse, I love. I was like, I They're great. want those. And that's something Miller has talked about uh, as far as the Mad Max franchises. He says that the the this future wasteland shouldn't look like a junkyard. Like even in the Paleolithic era, people had art. People had an appreciation for colorful and beautiful things, even in a restricted world. So that's something that he carries over throughout pretty much all of these movies. Uh, going back, Sam, to the hair dye question, perhaps. Uh, that will lead us then to the compound. Uh, to spare his life, the gyro captain pleads with Max and says, listen, I know a place where they're actually pumping fuel. For a man of your ingenuity, there's plenty to be had. So Max takes him as a hostage, actually uh, held hostage in his car by uh, his trusty dog, which is holding onto um, holding onto a bone, which is uh, strung up to the end of a shotgun. So that holding him hostage. And it's some really great acting from Bruce Spence. He looks pretty freaked out by this situation, especially as they drive by a rabbit, which the dog sees outside, but the dog being well-trained doesn't flinch. Uh, so some really great, some really great comedy, visual comedy there. Uh, and then they reach this compound. This is the area where s- some several survivors have banded together in, ef- in an effort to mine fuel, uh, which is a pretty rare commodity, as we've discussed. And there's a, a lot that goes into this scene. We we see that they're being besieged by this 
large crew of marauders, uh, seemingly the same ones that have been pursuing Max earlier on. And they seem to be holding the place hostage. Uh, there's really nothing that the folks trapped inside the compound can do with this fuel uh, and nowhere to go because they are ultimately surrounded by these ravenous marauders who want the fuel for themselves. Everyone's just so wild. Like all the characters, how they dress, like how they act. It's just, it, it's hard to not, like, it's hard to look away. Like, I think Miller just does such a good job. It's such a thorough game, as you mentioned, of like world design, character design, just to draw draw you in and it's just yeah it's hard not to get engrossed and absorbed in this pretty basic story you know nuts and bolts story but dressed and created so thoroughly and there's one thing that i truly love about this sequence there's a shot from above as they're they're looking down on the compound as night has fallen and the marauders begin peeling away and leaving for the night across the desert kicking up sand and dust toward an eerily purple sky and it's shot with an anamorphic lens so the shot is just so huge that you can actually see the curvature of the earth. And that is also in, in an environment where you can't see a man-made structure for like hundreds of miles. This was shot in Broken Hill, New South Wales, Australia. So it was a good deal removed from uh, from society and from a lot of man-made structures. There were just kind of like uh, sort of pathways and roads that they were able to use to, to make their way out into a backdrop of basically nothing. And I think it makes it even crazier that there's so many like full pan or almost like 360 shots of throughout this film without any crew or structures anywhere to be seen. Like where was all their stuff? Like it's incredible that they were able to make a movie that feels this shockingly huge and empty at the same time. Like Waterworld? <laughs> Yo, Waterworld's a bit like Waterworld. Yeah, Waterworld filled on open water. I'm gonna, I'm not, you know, justifying that movie but i'll justify the use of open water and the <laughs> ability to have some aerial sweeping shots of only ocean uh but that is a great question you raised dave about yeah the mo like how mobile their equipment must have had to be in order to get yeah, get shots from above and not reveal any production equipment or anything like that i didn't really i didn't even think about that or like set yeah no sets obviously they're just out there uh but it's hard to yeah hide kind of the behind the scenes equipment that goes along with shooting you know a decently budgeted movie it, and it's wild too with some of the stuff later on some of these chases where they're like set against like a sunset which is behind the camera but it remains wholly convincing and diagenic because the camera is mounted on one of the vehicles that they're driving. So, like, there's never any hint that there's a camera there, except for actually one shot at the very end, which is the only thing that makes this movie uh, imperfect at all. But, uh, but yeah, for the most part, it's it's really remarkable they were able to cover their tracks in a space this large. Um, Dave, I think you just broke the whole, the earth is flat people. We, I'm not going to name any names, but we used to have a coworker who was a flat earther. Did and we? Yes. Yes, we did. I will say who it is. We'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but I remember one time it was, it, it was, it was someone a long time ago. And he said to me, I've just never seen the curvature. And I remember, like, he said that to me, and, like, part of my soul died. So, like, definitely now I know, like, I wish I could rewind time a little bit and be like, I have this movie in my back <laughs> pocket, so, like, you can the curvature of the earth. Oh, anyway, 
glad that you just debunked this whole these all these people. God bless. It's, it's a sphere. It's a sphere. <laughs> so they they stay the night atop this mountain, and then the next morning there's an escape attempt from the people within the compound. They're trying to break away from the marauders in order to. Uh, I don't know. It seems like just escape. Uh, it, their, their motives are a little bit unclear in that regard. Um, but they're trying to leave. They're trying to escape. These vehicles are quickly mowed down by the marauders to some pretty horrific uh, some pretty horrific ends. Uh, content warning going into this movie, there is a uh, rape scene, which is uh, largely off screen, but is implied with enough, it's, it's visceral enough that it's, it's functionally upsetting. Before getting to that, though, I do love the comic relief of uh, Max bringing out the binoculars and then the gyro captain whipping out this, like, five-foot-long telescope. And then because Max has all the leverage in this situation, of course, he just forcibly swaps the two. Um, and then they observe this this pretty horrific and pretty grisly scene. So they're watching as the marauders pin a man to his vehicle using arrows, and a woman is brutalized and raped and then murdered. Uh, but Miller does strike a relatively rare balance of making the moment both functionally upsetting and visceral, but not really showing much of the act. It's largely Max and the gyro captain's reactions as they look on. And Brian May, not the guitarist of Queen, but a great composer nonetheless, Brian May's score is doing a lot of heavy lifting to accentuate the drama in this moment in particular. Dave, I was really glad that you had given that warning in the group chat. And I, and I agree. I think that like largely it does happen off screen um however like it's still like you still see some parts of it happening and, it, and there it's, was it's death some on screen <laughs> yeah and it made me you know i kind of went back and forth in this moment where like i i don't i don't ever need to see something like this on screen i just like i don't need it um and then like at, at first i was like really frustrated with it and being like well you know i'm so glad that we've moved past things like now and like we haven't we still haven't like things like this are still storytelling of devices and you know like it's one of those really complicated things and like obviously we're talking about a movie that's like a post-apocalyptic so it's like, <laughs> like very different than than some films that that use this as a central plot device mm. but it's like would i this is something that happens and it's really it, deeply upsetting to, to view it on screen. It's, it's really horrific to experience these things and to know people who've experienced these things. So like, because they're so horrific, do we avoid putting them in movies? Do we avoid talking about them and, and, and using them as, as plot devices? Or would that also be like, I don't know, like continuing harm. Like if everything's about harm reduction, wouldn't like talking about this and like, I don't know. I don't know what what I'm trying to say, but I ended up coming back around to being like, no, I actually think that it's like, maybe it's not critical to, to the movie, but like it does belong in it. It's for a gulf of difference between something like this and let's say like irreversible, for example. I mean, to continue the comparisons between this and Waterworld, like, I, we talked a lot about last week, or I guess two weeks ago in the context of Waterworld, although there isn't a de depiction of rape, you have the main character and supposed hero of the story still assaulting a woman and multiple times. And that I feel like is in many ways, well... While the, the the sort of content, the graphic nature of the content is not necessarily the same, the fact that you have, in the context of Road Warrior, this horrific incident 
basically as a way to suggest the horrific nature of the marauders. What are we calling them? The They're kind of just called marauders. I don't marauders. believe that this gang actually has the name. Well, you have that action as evidence of how horrific they are. In a movie like Waterworld, it almost excuses the main character's behavior and treatment of women in an unexcused, like by contemporary standards, an unexcusable way. And so I think that that is something to be compared, even though you don't see, you know, a graphic incident of sexual assault in Westworld or Westworld, Waterworld. I think that it does more harm situated in that story than it does arguably in Road Warrior. Yeah, I, th I think I would agree with all that. Um, so that having happened, Max, as the dust is sort of settled, he makes his way down to overpower one of the marauders that has lingered uh, in the backdrop. He uh, just bashes him with, a, I think it's a large wrench or maybe they're bolt cutters, I don't recall, but takes him out pretty well, pretty aptly and pretty handily. There's nothing he can do for the um, the woman who has been has been raped and murdered uh, but the man uh, that's pinned to the vehicle remains alive, so he approaches him. Uh, the man pleads for rescue and to be brought back to the compound where he can get medical attention. And Max is quick to point out that, uh, you know, he's not he's not yet in this film, let's say, um, an altruistic or moralistic character. He tells him very quickly, I'm only here for the fuel. But then the man tells him as a bit of an in and a bit of a, a deal, like, look, I can get you all the fuel you want. You just have to get me back to the compound. He rushes him back to, back to the compound and is uh, reluctantly ushered in by the rest of the compound uh, inhabitants, uh, including the feral child that is uh, this sort of wordless little kid who is uh, just wearing, sort of wearing animal furs and carrying a boomerang who seems to live both within and outside of the camp. He's brought into the camp, and uh, that's just as Lord Humongous uh, is given his introduction as the Marauders close back in. And there's a lot that goes into the Lord Humongous. So the Lord Humongous arrives. He is has Wes in tow, who we've met before, and already has a, a bit of a a bit of a a bug in his bonnet, let's say, I guess, for uh, for Max uh, is is uh, resentful from the previous exchange and, and sort of wants vengeance. And the Lord Humongous is, for for a tyrannical warlord, let's say, like, slightly diplomatic, I guess? He makes this uh, this speech that, look, all that we want is the fuel and the compound, and we'll let you walk away with your lives. Just walk away, and this can all be over. Just walk away. Just walk away. As all this is going on, the feral child, uh, through one of the tunnels that they built uh, from in and out of the compound, emerges and throws a boomerang at all of them. Really great little moment where uh, Toadie, which is basically uh, the Lord Humongous's hype man, goes to reach for it and has all of his fingers cut off. And then the rest of the crew, the Marauders, laugh at him. So there's sort of like a delightful and playful cruelty amongst them, even amongst themselves. Uh, and then... The feral child, when retrieving the boomerang, whips it around one more time, and it strikes Wes's riding partner, killing him. Uh, Wes is freaking out. He's saying, no, we go in, we kill, we kill, no more talk. And it takes the Lord Humongous, with his giant stature, to strangle him into submission, reassuring him, look, we all lost someone we love, but we do it my way, my way. The Lord Humongous, by the way, is largely... Uh, Outside of like sort of like a leather speedo and some uh, some brace straps, 
uh, nude man who also is donning a silver hockey mask uh, and speaking through this megaphone in this very methodical way. Again, he's sort of the the leader of the group. And as uh, Toadie puts it when hyping him up, the Ayatollah of rock and roll, uh, the ruler of the wasteland. So Lord Humongous and his gang, how do we feel about this uh, this whole crew as they roll up to the compound? When the feral child retrieves his boomerang, is this the scene when he backflips back into the hole? I think it is, yeah, at one point during that, yeah. I screamed. I was like, that is the most amazing thing. I This feral child, please, can we just give him his own movie? <laughs> <laughs> This feral child is amazing and is the perfect energy that this movie needs. Um, Because, yeah, he's definitely like you over the course of the movie, Mad Max sort of like brings him under his wing and they have some great action scenes together. But the feral child is just constantly crawling and screaming and backflipping and is just the chaotic energy that fits perfectly in each scene. He's like Bam Bam, like Mad Max Bam Bam. It's great. <laughs> he really is. I love how excited he gets at all the violence. Like, <laughs> like he just, it's, it's just a great little character. And I also got to give it credit to the kid who plays the feral child because a lot of it is kind of over the top and hilarious, but there is this sort of beautiful sensitivity in his eye. There's sort of sense of wonder and you, you're like, this is, you're the only child in this compound. I don't see any other children. Maybe there, are there any other children depicted in this movie? I don't think so. And so he adds this element of like, you know, the next generation, <laughs> what's going to happen. <laughs> um, but he's hard as fuck. He's hard as nails and he's a lot of fun to watch. I am a hundred percent team feral child, especially that backflip. If like, obviously anyone who's listening to this should watch this movie, but even if you just YouTube feral child backflip, it's worth it. <laughs> also being, yeah, the, uh, the representative of the next generation to sort of, we're the kids in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I love a lot about the Marauders too, and their whole aesthetic. I mean, they themselves are basically dressed either as like 80s street punks or leather fetishists and are pretty androgynous which is is pretty interesting. Uh, also, I love that they approach um, the compound with the dead and captured mounted on their vehicles, some alive enough to plead for rescue. It's brutal. Brutal, but also like hysterical. Like I hate that I laughed, but I did. There was a lot of things that like I hated that I laughed, but I was laughing. I was really enjoying it. And I, I think that it, it, there's also a reason why I enjoy this because it does remind me of our collective friend, Matt, hmm. a lot, particularly this, uh, I'm sorry. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. His name. Lord humongous. What? Lord That's, humongous. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, our friend Matt has a picture of this guy as his background picture on, uh, his work computer, <laughs> completely separate of like this conversation, knowing that we were going to be talking about this movie on the podcast. It's been his display background for like a month or so. So I don't know, like, you know, there is a place in my heart for this character. I, I gotta say, and, and you're right. Like he is weirdly diplomatic, crazy. In an in an in a fascinating and way that I'd be like, you know what, I might I could follow this guy. It's just a little strange that he's like, I'll give you one full day to decide. And it's like 
You have them outnumbered and outgunned right now. I also but. like the sh- the shot of his, the back of his head. I'm not sure when he, mm. it's when he's giving this speech or a later speech when he has the compound surrounded. It but, says he's choking out Wes, yeah. Oh, okay, so that's later. But you get this shot of the back of his, like, hairless head, and you see the, like, veins and arteries, like, like the cranial arteries pumping and getting, like, tighter and tighter. And it's just this wonderful, it's not quite body horror, but just this wonderful sort of scene of just, like, like all of, I don't know, it's, yeah, just like the energy coursing through his veins that adds to his horrific strength and, yeah, in- intense body. And people are often quick to say, like, oh, well, what? he's just like, I mean, it's just like Jason Voorhees in the Wasteland. Uh, I've got news for you. Jason Voorhees didn't wear the mask until one year later in the third film, just so you know. Before that, he was wearing a sack. So you're wrong. <laughs> and not a terribly diplomatic character. Also, Jason Voorhees, yeah, is not as smart as this guy. Uh, he, he, yeah, he couldn't lead a cadre of this size, I would say. So what happens now is that we get a bit of context for the the inside of the compound. Humongous has said, uh, as we just discussed, like, I'll give you one full day to decide. I will give you safe passes through the wasteland if you surrender the pump. Um, Papagallo, who is the leader of the compound, who have, bears a stunning resemblance to Mick Jagger, in my opinion, um, is sort of like uh, like urging to the rest of the crowd as they're becoming resistant and considering Humongous's offer that, well, you know what? We have the fuel and we need to figure out how to transport it. There's always a way we can figure this out. Um, Max is sitting sidelined, listening to all this within the compound. We have another nice little moment between him and the feral child where he brings out the music box that he had and retrieved at the beginning of the film, winds it up and shows it to the feral child who is beyond excited about it. And he kind of smiles a little bit, tosses it to the feral child. The feral child is having fun with this music box and then runs out of the scene. So it's this little connection. It's this this sort of the first connection that we see of of Max making with this community. Um, But right then, as they're debating what they're going to do next, Max pipes up and says, listen, Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that could haul that tanker. You want to get out of here? Talk to me. Uh, So the idea is now that Max will be given several gallons of um, fuel, uh, especially high-octane fuel, so that he can go retrieve the large uh, big rig that we saw abandoned at the start of the film. Uh, He leaves the compound by cover of night. Uh, He's nearly detected by some of the marauders, but the feral child steps in with a uh, throwing his voice with a fake coyote call to distract the marauder so that uh, he can continue on. And then Max makes his way back uh, toward the gyro captain. Uh, We have this great reunion and uh, the gyro captain pretty hilariously stops in his tracks when he hears the dog barking from behind. Uh, And then... Max sicks the dog on him from a great distance. It's actually very funny. Bruce Spence and the dog had a great charisma. Uh, They got along like peas in a pod on set, apparently. So they had to make up this game where they played tug of war with Bruce Spence's scarf as like a visual form of antagonization. Uh, Also worth noting is that the gyro captain this whole time has still been chained to a log uh, and is still dragging that log behind him when he's recovered by Max. Uh, The next scene, though, that we cut to is that the log has been removed. Max has given granted him that. But again, leverage. Uh, he always has to have one up on somebody, as you do in the wasteland. Uh, we cut to him uh, 
the gyro captain sans log, but instead carrying the fuel. And I just love that detail so much that it just it's 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 a transaction uh, and an interaction that we see that occurs uh, pretty much off screen in transition between these two shots. But it kind of says everything about that importance of leverage, the importance of having one over on someone in this reality, in the wasteland because of the stakes and survival, but without saying a word. And that, again, is George Miller to a T. He, he will show you rather than telling you every time. I kept thinking about, like, why is, uh, like, helicopter guy, I know it's a gyro captain, but I... I have my problems with it and I got to call it a helicopter <laughs> by helicopter. Why is he just like accepting this? Like, I think I might have missed something at the very beginning of the movie where like they had their moment of like connection or what have you, because even at the very end, and, and I don't want to rush this conversation, but I was like, just leave. He's like, that sucked. <laughs> he did not do good things to you. Why, why are you still here and helping him? But, I, well, I think it's it's help only in the sense, that, again, it's leverage because Max has left him chained to this thing. Max has the key. So when he shows up again, he unchains him on the condition that he carry the fuel. Uh, and all of this is backed up by uh, force. Max has this sawed off shotgun that the gyro captain knows him to have and has had this whole time. But then we hilariously discover when they return to the gyrocopter this time, uh, Max opens, finds a, a shell on the ground for uh, the sawed off and opens up the uh, sawed-off shotgun, revealing that there were no bullets in the entire time, and the gyro captain remarking, this whole time, that's sneaky, low. The, the great thing, too, with this reveal is that uh, he goes on to say, uh, of this new shotgun shell uh, to Max, how do we know that that one's not a dud? And Max turns to him and says, find out. And he says, cool, 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 and backs off. So again, constant leverage. Uh, that's how the wasteland kind of works. I feel like the gyro captain also has like Richard E. Grant energy. I kept like, mm -hmm. I feel like he's like, if the head of the compound is like a Australian Mick Jagger, I feel like the gyro captain is an Australian Richard E. Grant or the or vice versa. I can see that. Um, next, Max, uh, using the fuel after having been uh, flown to the uh, the abandoned big rig by the gyro captain, uh, who he now lets go scot free and just says, like, look, I don't need you anymore. I have this big rig. I'm going to drive it back. You're on your own. But the gyro captain at this point does kind of come around and it's kind of warmed up to uh, to Max saying like, listen, we're partners. Like, I, I thought we made a good team. But Max being the loner that he is drives back to the compound solo, but trailed by the gyro captain who is uh, hot on his heels, just sort of flying after him. Uh, during this return, it gets the attention of the marauders who were camped out outside of the compound and as he's driving this big rig in clearly with the intention of getting their oil out of there lord humongous and his crew kind of like storm this big rig as it's making its way back the lord humongous uh, again being maybe smarter than he seems uh whips out this large magnum and rather than shooting max shoots at the radiator of the truck uh, partially disabling it uh, really interesting stuff, too, about his gun case. He opens this case, and it's this red velvet-lined gun case that Humongous has featuring uh, ammunition, this gun, this scope, and seemingly like an old family photo in these weird, like, war trophies, which is just such an awesome detail to include for, like, no reason other than uh, that it brings up more questions than answers. And that's another great thing about George Miller as a director. As much as he is the visual director and gives you less dialogue and more visual things to string along, 
He's also someone that won't explain everything because he trusts his audience enough and respects his audience enough to allow them to use their imagination for things that don't need explanation. Like, that's why I'm so glad there's not a Mad Max extended universe because it's totally unnecessary. You mean you don't want the HBO Max original Lord Humongous two-season origin story? No. You don't don't want that. I got the Mad Max origin stories for Fury Road in a comic book, and they were written by the same team, including Miller, that wrote the movie, and they're not good. And I also don't need them. Like, George, trust me, you've given me all that I need. But yeah, they get back to the compound. Uh, The folks of the compound do a pretty good job of defending themselves. They pretty aptly get rid of the marauders that make their way past the gate and defend themselves. And... Uh, at that point, uh, there's also this uh, this guy. One of the one of the marauders has this crazy like pink Cadillac looking car, and also has like matching pink hair and a beard, and that gets set on fire by one of the flamethrowers within the compound in a really satisfying explosion. So that's really cool. So all of this goes on, and then uh, it's basically understood that they have the resources they need, this big rig, to get uh, some of the oil out of this compound and escape the Lord Humongous's grasp. I like a lot of the compound details of the mechanics of the world. I feel like in Waterworld, we talked a little bit about all of the mechanics of the uh, atoll and how interesting it is to see if a an apocalyptic, like humans surviving in a, in a post-apocalyptic universe and how they would build new gadgets. I love the details within this compound, not only the mechanical, how machines function or or things they've re, rebuilt how those function but also sort of the agricultural uh areas of the compound as well the cat the, the chickens uh mm-hmm. the pigs and things like that but i i love all depictions of the um of the compound life and love the bus front gate i think that's a great detail really 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 fun Cool stuff. And we do meet some really cool characters that are also associated with this compound. We have the warrior woman, as she's credited, and the mechanic, uh, who is uh, paraplegic, but is still really, really central to uh, maintaining the structures and the the machines within the compound. And also does a good job of fighting some of the bad guys by, like, pivoting around on this thing that he's on. Yes, the mechanic is suspended on a crane, right? Or he's, he's... His his seat is uh, tied up in a crane, and he kind of uh, has a, has a wonderful range of mobility, and he's constantly tinkering on the cars or on you know whatever needs to be repaired. Later on, he's actually positioned on the tanker that escapes. Right, he's the one who's in the back, who, mm-hmm. who like is throwing like Molotov cocktails on the back. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, he definitely is so um, pivotal, uh, plays a really uh, important role in in keeping things going. And I just love the details of his sort of bouncy suspension on this crane as he's fixing uh, fixing the cars. And so next, uh, as we said before, the radiator is shot to hell of this big rig. It was, it was plowed through at pretty close range with a, a very powerful magnum. Uh, so it's it's in bad shape. And there's this really great list and exchange of stuff that's wrong with the rig and uh, the people communicating it from various distances throughout the compound saying basically like, how long, how long, 24 hours, 24 hours, tell them they've got 12. You've got 12. Okay. (laughs) And the delivery of that. Okay. It's just such a great line. It's just such a like great, great moment of levity in this very serious moment within the film. 
Uh, we also get a glimpse of what the Marauders are up to now that they're really pissed off and outside the compound all night, which includes stringing up and torturing their captured victims. The Lord Humongous screaming a threatening tirade toward the compound via his microphone and doing donuts on motorcycles in the rain, all backlit by flames, which is just so fucking metal that I can't, I can't stand it. I totally love it. Uh, meanwhile, inside the compound, uh, the gyro captain is trying to convince one of the compound members, uh, a woman, to fly away with him on his, his chopper uh, to escape all this. But she decides to stay along with the survivors, describing them as her family. The gyro captain lets her go without protest and, after a pause, decides that maybe, even against great odds, fighting to survive with a family beats the lonely world of exploring the wasteland without a cause or connection. I was just going to say, her outfit is the only outfit in the whole movie that situates this movie clearly in the 1980s. She's got this super high, on-the-top-of-her-head ponytail, like an off-the-shoulder baby pink sweater. Every mm -hmm. other outfit feels like it could exist in an, any decade's depiction of the future, except for this outfit. She is clearly right out of a jazzercizer class in 1981. But I love it her character. Very 80s vibe, yeah, for it is sure. It is so 80s. Uh, that pairs, though, super nicely, actually perfectly, I'd say, with uh, Papa Gallo confronting Max, uh, saying to Max, like, look, you don't have to leave. You could be part of this family. We could do this together. But Max is insistent that he's done his deal. He's done his part. He's self-interested. And this isn't about connection for me. This isn't about community for me. This is about survival. And I'm going to do that on my own. As he confronts Max, there's a shoving match eventually at one point after Papa Gallo pushes him too far, at, suggesting that Max isn't special in his having been hurt by this wasteland in having lost someone that he loves. Uh, and then ultimately says, you know, we here at the compound, we haven't given up. We're still human beings with dignity. But you, you're out there with the garbage. You're nothing. Max, however, is resolute in his aim of getting out of there, only to be confronted once more by the feral child with whom he's established a connection earlier on. And he's there playing with the music box that Max gave him. Again, all of this just sort of screaming uh, as it did to the gyro captain. Listen, maybe you should stay. Maybe we can make a run of this together. Maybe we can achieve greater things as uh, uh, through collective action than through individualism. But Max isn't interested in that. He throws the music box further away and the feral child chases after it. Uh, and that's the moment that Max is able to peel out using his interceptor from the compound and stake out uh, his claim on his own yet again. Uh, any thoughts on those confrontations, uh, those lost connections, the gyro captain deciding to stay, any of that? I mean, a great job of putting Max in his place. Of like, you're not special. Like, everyone has lost and suffered horribly in this torture hellscape desert world. Even the Lord Humongous is saying that at one point. We all lost someone we love. Right. And so I think it's a really good job of like... Oh, we have this cool, edgy character who wants to do it alone. But then people in his universe are taking him to task on that. And are like, eh, you're not actually special. Like, you're not as cool as you think you are by going lone wolf. Yeah, very much so. This leads us to Max leaving the compound. And this shot, uh, this shot is around, I wrote it down. Uh, it's an hour, around an hour and five minutes into the movie. It's a shot of Max uh, from the driver's side perspective disheveled and driven as he's flooring it away from the compound, presumably in pursuit, bathed in the orange light of the sunrise. And it's just jaw-dropping, especially as he revs up the V8 with a tight zoom on the exhaust vent. And it's just, 
incredible stuff. Like it's it's the kind of movie making and editing and direction that I live for, and just makes such an impact. Uh, again, by contrast to say Road Warrior, which or excuse me, Fury Road. I'm going to keep doing that, but to Fury Road, um, which in spite of its like visual splendor and grandeur, is is pretty pretty similar throughout the movie. Like there aren't a whole lot of shots that really stand out in memory stylistically because it does have such a homogeny of vision, at least for me. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Yeah. I, I guess later we'll compare more Fury Road and Road Warrior, but that's how we're rounding I mean, out. Yeah. So I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but Fury Road is Road Warrior if George Miller had computers and CG graphics and was able to like do these huge expanded, like giant tornadoes, sandstorms, like all these things that you can't practically do. That's kind of just what I was thinking of. Like, Oh, this is like the car chases are awesome in road warrior. And then they're also awesome on fury road, but crank to 11 because more budget computers, you know, there was just a whole lot more resources that George Miller had with fury road. I don't know, but we'll get into mm-hmm. the, ro- the the final chase sequence i would say that was cranked just to 11 because you really watch people jumping from car moving jumping from moving vehicle to moving vehicle which as a spectacle maybe it's not as fast as fury road but as something that really makes you feel like what you're watching was actually happening and the tension is ramped up that high i would say that's like an 11 you know energy level I guess by 11, I meant like flashy, flashy, like, but this, I think this is just as exciting for all the reasons that you listed. You know, for actually, yeah, jumping ahead a little bit. I mean, I agree on all fronts. I think that, I mean, it's worth noting that in Fury Road, people are also jumping from vehicle to vehicle and all the stunts, all the car crashes are practical effects. They're just enhanced by the background of the CG landscape. So in that sense, it's very true to the original vision and practical stunt work. So in that way, it's very consistent, but to very different ends, I would say. And yeah, I would agree cranked up to, to 11 while still maintaining the original spirit of the, the franchise. Uh, but we'll save Fury Road for later because we're almost through this movie. Now, uh, as Max is uh, is escaping, he's pursued yet again by the Marauders. And I love too that it cuts from that shot I just discussed, this bathed in orange sunlight to like full-blown daytime which like illustrates not only, you know, probably like practical and time and budgetary constraints as far as filmmaking, but also kind of like quietly and without dialogue illustrates that this chase may have been going on for hours, which is really cool. Max is eventually overpowered by the Marauders. uh, And there's this incredible scene where uh, Max's uh, V8 interceptor, the last of the V8 interceptors is run off the road and tumbles for what feels like forever into a ditch. Uh, the Marauders approach. They, knowing that Max is overpowered, are pretty much ready to kill him and steal his fuel. But as we know, Max has booby-trapped his fuel tanks. So just as Toady, uh, the hype man for the Humongous, is dealing with his tank and trying to siphon the gas, uh, another guy is approaching Max with his crossbow, ready to kill him. Uh, his dog, who survived all this, uh, very, very spryly jumps up in defense of Max, uh, and is quickly dispatched via via crossbow just off screen. A uh, pretty crushing moment. And just before he loads up his crossbow to kill Max, uh, because Toadie is messing with the fuel tanks and they're rigged to explode, of course, the V8 interceptor explodes, killing uh, both of the Marauders and leaving Max wounded but stranded in the wasteland. Does the Marauder with the sunglasses and the black 
Leather Daddy Mask have a name? Is he a named character? Because he's terrifying. I think he's one of the scariest characters in the whole movie. I don't recall. I mean, probably in the credits, maybe, but I don't know which guy particularly that would be. Um, it's just such a memorable, like, he has such a striking, I feel like, uh, maybe not silhouette's not the right word, but, like, design, like, look, like, um, he's quiet, He has, you can't see his eyes, like, just a great, once again, back to the world building and these characters that are incredibly memorable and stick with you. It's certainly imposing, yeah. Yeah. For ultimately what's just like a guy who just shoots a dog, like kind of old, like he doesn't it's kind of like the Boba Fett syndrome of like, he does like, he looks cool and does one or two things, but doesn't really play a role, greater role in the plot, but someone who sticks with you. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Also like a pink Cadillac guy. That guy always stands out in my memory as well. Exactly. The fact that like the dog kind of dies off screen and yet like that, is, that is just too horrific for us to see <laughs> and to deal with yet like we still have to watch that like woman get mm-hmm. raped and like murdered on screen <laughs> there's something there definitely to talk about yeah yeah you're not wrong for sure although as you said sam i guess you know you've, you have visceral reactions to animal violence so <laughs> so this leaves max pretty much screwed but fortunately the gyro captain uh with his Long periscope is able to see that there's been an explosion far away from the compound. And he decides, uh, you know, he's part of this community and damn it, he and Max are good partners. So he takes up his gyrocopter and he flies out to Max and rescues him. There's a really great shot too of the gyro captain looking down at Max as he flies back toward the compound, which is just Max and the quickly passing ground below him without any of the chopper's machinery, which makes it so surreal and unique. That was one of my favorite shots of the whole movie. When we were talking earlier in the episode about the movie's ability to uh, just depict sweeping landscape in such a realistic way, I thought of that shot where you're just looking down at Max's bloodied face slightly to the right, and then on the left part of the shot is all just abandoned vehicles, tire, uh, like tire treads in the earth. And it's just also a really inventive shot, like a sort of the, the, the helicopter view, which, yeah, it was a really, really stunning frame. I've seen it mimicked in many movies since. I, I, I don't know that I can name one offhand, but it's definitely like a staple. And so then he's he's brought back and he's cared for by this community. They nurse him back to at least enough help that he can get up and around while they're still making plans to escape on their own. But uh, now Papagallo, because Max is so injured, has decided like, look, I'm going to drive the rig out of here. Uh, we're going to load it up with all the fuel and I'm just going to bolt and they'll chase me and the fuel while the rest of the compound can get away. I'll martyr myself as a leader so that everyone else can survive. But Max, having been rescued by this this community, having been brought back uh, into the compound, having been cared for, having been stitched up, having been yeah rescued, just finds seemingly immediately finds this uh, this appreciation for this community. And having been so banged up, what else is he going to do? Uh, he decides, you know what? I'll drive the tanker, and that leads us then into the final chase. Uh, that being Max driving the tanker full of the fuel as a distraction so that the rest of the folks in the compound can get away. Uh, They start out on this plan with Max flooring it away, uh, trailed by Papagallo, who's helping him out, and the gyro captain from above. 
Which is also a great detail. I love that there are overhead shots in this movie that are explained as diagenic because they're from the viewpoint of a character, even though that's the best way to illustrate a chase. Again, like everything was considered uh, and everything is part of a feasible narrative. And as as they're leaving, of course, uh, they're chased after by the uh, the marauders, including Lord Humongous and Wes, uh, who's instinctively go after the tanker knowing that's where the fuel is while their underlings siege the compound which has now been abandoned but unbeknownst to them it's been rigged to explode and this explosion is crazy like you can see actual shock waves radiating off of this practical effect explosion and it was such a large explosion in fact that they had to alert australian airlines uh it just it, to make sure that they weren't freaking out at the thought that an airplane had crashed in the desert that's hardcore. They really don't make them like this anymore. <laughs> yeah. And also, that being said, like, in the chase that, that follows, which I'm going to suggest, I'm going to let you guys take the wheel on the chase. Uh, but as the chase is going on, there is, in one particular scene, um, this motorcyclist who's riding, who bashes into another crash vehicle, and you see him, like, do, like, a ragdoll aerial somersault for, like, 30 feet throughout the air. That was the one of the only injuries on set. Uh, what was originally planned was that he was going to strike the vehicle and then go flying, but the stuntman accidentally caught his leg on the uh, frame of the car, which is why he went into that ragdoll spin. He knew something was wrong. So as a stuntman, you just go limp. And his leg wound up being uh, pretty badly shattered, but ultimately he recovered pretty well and was cared for by the production. But still, they kept it in because it was such an insane visual thing. And that having been said, if that's the worst injury in this movie, like... It's astonishing that dozens of people weren't killed when you look at the footage of this movie. Wait, to clarify, are you talking about when two cars, so you have the the tanker and then you have a sidecar and it's the guy who gets wedged or suddenly is dropped and he's wedged between the two vehicles? No, 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 that's a dummy. Yeah, okay, that's dummy work. Okay, this is, okay, uh, this okay. is another guy who bashes into one of the uh, disabled vehicles off-road just off the highway and then goes flying toward the camera. Okay, I feel like I also saw that saw that as well. Okay, those were t- multiple instances in which they had good dummy work for for some of the dummies that were used, but otherwise I could not believe the stunt people that they had doing a lot of these moves. Um and I feel like the the cuts I'm sure there are a lot of uh sort of longer takes in Fury Road of fast moving cars and people jumping from jump from car to car. But at the same time, I feel like there are sharper and quicker edits. I feel like road warrior, the pacing is slightly slower, but the long action shots make it absolutely incredible. You're like a hundred percent. These are stunts that are happening. And I just couldn't believe because that's a lot. Like how long do you think in total the road, the chase sequence is probably like what? 12 minutes, 12 to 15 minutes, maybe 12 minutes. It's like the last 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah. That's really long. And you're like, okay, how many different ways can they depict this? Like where, where is this going? But they find new and inventive ways of continuing to keep the adrenaline rush of like Max getting chased by the marauders. And you are reintroduced to some of the marauders and their interesting vehicles and also some brutal compound member deaths. Like the, I was so sad to see the the lady with the bow, the bow and arrow get 
oh, like mutilated. Well, she dies and then she falls onto the side of the tanker and gets like caught in the chicken wire that's surrounding the gas tanks. And oh, that was rough. And her body is just dangling on the side of the truck. And I was wondering if they got a dummy to be her or whether that actress had to actually just stay on the side of this fast moving truck. I don't know. It was insane. It's a bit of both. Also, Christine, really glad you brought up the the editing pacing between these two, th- those two movies in particular, Fury Road and this. This movie is uh, a little over an hour and a half and has 120 shots. Uh, that gives you an average of about 1.333 shots per minute. Fury Road, on the other hand, has 2,700 shots, uh, which gives you a total of about 22.5 per minute. So entirely different in terms of editing as well. And I think you you definitely feel that in this movie versus Fury Road. Fury Road is like, it's this movie on speed. And this movie really allows you a lot of breathing room to take things in by contrast. But still to be on the edge of your seat when major action mm-hmm. sequences are happening. Yeah, definitely. So Max is plowing through. There's uh, tons of vehicles in pursuit. They're they're fucking with him. They're crashing into him. They're trying to kill him. Anything anything uh, about this this chasing that really stands out before the uh, the climax of it? Uh, two things. One, I didn't think that I would miss the um, guy with the guitar. Just like Duke yeah, I, I, I kind of miss that. I wish we had a little bit of that, but you know what? That's okay. That's all right. That's what makes things different and special. Um, but also just like the condition that Max was in at this point. I swear, like his eye is like bleeding and it feels like it's it's like not operational. He looks like just like a man who is barely hanging on and still just like, oh, I'm going to do it. It's rad, yeah. honestly. This is jumping to when the tanker finally crashes. We can go back. But I loved that you brought that up, Sam, because when you see Max getting himself out of the squished cab, you see the the, the, uh, splint on his knees and on his leg. And you're like, oh, shit, he was in a fucking splint the whole time this was happening because his legs were busted. That's from the first movie. Yeah. He's wearing a split the whole time, which is actually really funny. Uh, Wait, what? He's wearing the... a split the whole time? Did I miss this? Yeah, yeah. He's he's got like a he's got like a leg brace, and um, I thought that's his because leg he was shot was... in the leg in the first film. I thought his leg brace was added once he got in the first car accident in this movie. Oh shit! So maybe it's there the whole time, even even so much so that when he's going to leave, based on this deal and carrying the fuel, one of the compound members is oiling his leg brace. Oh shit. Well, yeah. So the fact that he <laughs> can so all good. of this in a fucking leg brace. And that that's a credit to Mel Gibson, which is something I don't I don't say often. Uh I, I will say that Mel Gibson as an actor can play pain and perseverance better than almost anyone else. And in a way that like it's not like Max is like in tatters, but you can tell that it's taking a toll. Like he's He's aware that he still has to press on, but you can see the weight of each individual blow weighing on him as it continues. Who do you think and would win in a pain-off? James Kahn or Mel Gibson? Who do Gibson. you think wears pain on their face more? Probably Gibson, especially if you consider Braveheart in the mix there, too. But yeah, even, even Papagallo, who again is helping um, Max with, uh, with this, this escape, 
uh, you can see him looking over at Max and seeing that Max is checked out. He is burned out. He, can, he He's barely hanging on. But he has the feral child on his truck. The feral child, by the way, snuck onto the rig uh, when they were making their escape. So Papagallo is trying to, like, usher the kid back, saying, like, look, you have to come with me, basically, without saying so, that, like, Max isn't going to make it. You need to come with me. I'm going to save you. Just as Lord Humongous arrives and from behind throws this trident across the wasteland and just destroys Papagallo, killing him. Uh, and now Max knows that he's on his own and also has the feral child in tow, so has to survive at least enough to protect him. And protect him he does in some interesting ways because at this point, uh, his truck is being besieged by all sorts of uh, of these marauders, including Wes, who's back for his revenge. He's now literally unchained by the Lord Humongous and is on top of his truck. Max has lost all of the shotgun shells in his injuries and in the chase out on the hood of the truck. So he pushes out the feral kid to go get these, these this last shell so that he could reload his shotgun. And all the audio drops out. It's just the the, whis- the whisper of the wind flying by the truck as the feral kid climbs slowly across the hood of the truck, reaching at a great distance toward the shotgun shell. And just before he reaches it, Wes, who has been thrown from the truck but pinned to the front of it, grabs his hand in a jump scare. And so Wes is on the front of the truck. Uh, we also know that Lord Humongous, fed up with all this nonsense, is flooring it using his nitrous tanks toward the front of the war rig. Uh, and because of that, Wes turns around uh, just as Max pulls the feral kid back into the cab to safety to see the Lord Humongous barreling toward him head on, and they smash into each other in a climactic, explosive collision. So why did Lord Humongous think it was a good idea to barrel down the road in the opposite direction? I know that, oh, I know mm, Max okay. turns around. Does That's he it, see yeah. him come? Because it's like, I feel like there was a weird editing choice where it's like, yo, this area is pretty flat, but the way that it's shot, it looks as if Humongous is at the bottom of a hill and can't see Max at the top of a hill. But I'm like, where are these hills that were not depicted in the rest of the movie? Uh, It's a chase that's going on at like, you could presume like 60 to 80 miles an hour or so. You know, it's covering a lot of ground. You don't see everything, I guess. That felt like a mistake Humongous would not make. Because he he's calculating, he's smart, but, you know, I guess in the but rest But it has, of it has all gone to shit for him, and he true. needs this fuel. Uh, and <laughs> so also, he doesn't know the Max has turned around. I mean, that is also a key thing, too. I forgot to mention that. Max, at one point, in this awesome gesture, just turns the rig around. And we get my favorite shot in the movie, which is the, the rig, and, like, a, a, an approach vehicle on either side just bathed and silhouetted against this uh, sunrise as it kicks up dust toward the camera. And it's just truly gorgeous. Like my jaw drops every time I see it. But again, speaking of jaw dropping, there's this insane collision. Wes and Lord Humongous are destroyed to the point that actually, if you look at the uh, the rig as it continues in the shot afterward, there are little pieces of their bodies pinned to the top of the grill of the rig. But He loses control, uh, Max does, with uh, the feral child in his cab, and it turns over. And this stunt, as a practical stunt, is remarkable. The stunt driver not eat food for a full day, like fast, for a day, based on the assumption that if anything goes wrong with this stunt, he's going to have to be rushed to surgery immediately. (laughs) But that kind of speaks volumes, ultimately, of George Miller and, like, 
how much time he invests in doing some of the craziest stunts ever filmed. Like Ro- Roger Corman can eat his heart out as far as these car stunts are concerned. But at the same time, is so meticulous about safety and stunt safety and everyone being protected on a safe set that ultimately the biggest complaint and expenditure of all of the Mad Max movies was ultimately the time spent making sure that stunts would work properly because it took days in most cases. How dare he? How dare he spend time <laughs> choreographing these dangerous stunts going 60, 70 miles an hour? That leaves us then with uh, with Max and the Feral Child. Uh, the rest of the Marauders kind of turn tail and run when they see the overturned tanker because they notice that rather than leaking fuel, it's leaking sand. Turns out the whole time the compound has uh, gassed up this uh, tanker with uh, sand instead of fuel. They actually escaped with the fuel in their cars and uh, use the rig as a distraction. So we discover this, uh, as do the Marauders, and as does Max himself a ploy in this plan as he uh, walks over to the uh, the fuel tank, now leaking sand, r- runs his hand under it and lets the sand run between his fingers, almost as if to say like, huh, you managed to get me too. In the end though, ultimately, it turns out that the feral child has been our narrator the whole time. Uh, he is rescued by the uh, the rest of the compound tribe as they come to uh, come back to get him and uh, the gyro captain who has survived uh, this whole encounter as well. We learned that the gyro captain uh, led them eventually to their destination 2,000 miles away where they established, quote, the great northern tribe. So it seems as though they flourished uh, with the help of Max in the end of all this. But the uh, narrator that, the again, the feral child in the end laments that, uh, as for me, I grew into manhood and in the fullness of time, I became the leader, the great chief of the Northern tribe and the road warrior. That was the last we ever saw of him. He lives now only in my memories. And we watch as uh, the camera peels away from Mel Gibson, from Max, pretty beaten up, but uh, ultimately still there on the the road through the wasteland as he has always been uh just sort of a figment of this story but also the vehicle for it uh, a mythic figure but also a deeply developed person and uh just yeah all around some pretty wild storytelling and that being the end of the movie uh anyone have any final thoughts before we draw comparisons between this and fury road really quickly i don't know that last like line only lives now in my memories. It made me emotional. I'm not ashamed to say it, but I couldn't believe it. No, I agree. Yeah, totally. And good for the feral kid learning how to talk. Yes. I, yeah, I just couldn't ha- help think of that. I mean, you know, in the real world, if somebody doesn't learn the talk by their like two or three, it's generally like like real feral children. It's like you can't eventually, but good for him. He stuck through it. Or maybe it was a choice. become a great leader. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what? Don't let any barriers, physical, mental, you know, whatever, emotional, ba- like, you can achieve greatness just like the feral child. Damn right. I mean, he was achieving, let's be real, guys. He was achieving greatness through that whole movie. Okay? <laughs> none of us could Who do that. Who can handle a boomerang like that? Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. None of us could have done half the things feral child did through that whole movie. Where the fuck did he get that boomerang from? <laughs> like... It is so fucking sharp. Who gave that to this kid? I mean, great. He he probably made it. There was that one scene where he's like running his fingers along the blade of the, of the helicopter. And he's like, "Mm." and then Max is like, don't touch it. 
And then he's like, yes. And then he's like, don't touch it. <laughs> and maybe so maybe he just, he's been looking for new materials to make new boomerangs. He's got an eye for that sharp metal that can slice off any fingers. But when did he make it? When he was three? Like, yeah. what the hell here? This is also Australia. I, I assume as an uncultured person that there's like barrels of boomerangs lying around everywhere. So am I right that the original tanker that they eventually use at the end was got an accident because it hit a kangaroo? Uh, that's news to me. So, okay. The first, when he encounters the truck that they eventually use, what are we... And you probably already said this, but what do we assume to assume happened to that truck? How did it first I get disabled? I would imagine, like most vehicles, it was probably overcome by marauders. You so know, there the, is the a, white line nightmare that we there is described a, at the beginning. There's a dead kangaroo on the road in that scene. And so I assumed that the truck just hit the kangaroo and flipped and everyone died. <laughs> Look at that scene again. And I was like. Watching, so I watched um, The Tourist, which is that movie with, uh, what's his face? That Australian, no, it's not a movie, it's a show that just came out with um, Fifty Shades of Grey, dude. And an ongoing joke in that show, it's set in the outback and a lot of it looks exactly like Mad Max. A big running joke in the show is don't drive at night because you'll hit a kangaroo and you'll get in a terrible car accident. And so that's why, what I assumed happened to the original tanker just a fan theory i guess uh, look for the kangaroo uh, that, i swear that's an interesting a dead connection. kangaroo there is a dead kangaroo on the side of the road i i do recall a kangaroo i don't recall that being uh causality but uh, uh you might be onto something i don't know <laughs> dave i think you just have another reason to rewatch your favorite movie which is fine i will watch it a billion more times uh speaking of watching this movie a billion times it is my favorite in the mad max franchise that having been said, this this drawing us to a close. Uh, I know again, this is everyone's first time seeing it, but had you had already all seen Fury Road, and I sincerely hope that this doesn't sound in any way like gatekeeping, because the goal of what I'm saying is please watch all of these movies. I invite and urge you to. The one thing that I found really interesting about the release of Fury Road was that most people in my life had not seen any Mad Max movie before then, and they're seeing, in my opinion, like. Uh, and uh, Connor, as you said before, like Mad Max cranked up to 11. Like it's it's the same tone remarkably, but it has a lot more gain. It's way more of a spectacle. It's like the dictionary definition of a spectacle. It's miraculous that that movie exists and there is no other movie like it, including these. But that having been said, if you have only seen Fury Road and you're curious about the Mad Max franchise, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you to please go back and watch these movies because... If you can get past that, the advantages of modern filmmaking, the pace of its editing, and uh, all those other things that enhance Fury Road, make it what it is, then you, you'll find that at the core of it, uh, the world that George Miller has created, the show-don't-tell storytelling that is on display in Fury Road, the brilliance of the cultures and and societies that he molds within his vision are all still very much a play within all these other movies. The stunt spectacles are all there, albeit without the extravagance of modern CGI and quicker editing. And at the end of the day, if you watch those movies and you say to yourself, having only seen Fury Road and watch all the others, say that like, I didn't care for the rest of them. 
I, I'm totally okay with that because Fury Road is incredible. But I guarantee that even if you don't like the other ones as much, it will deepen your appreciation for Fury Road. Because when I saw it for the first time, it felt impossible that it was still so true to George Miller's original vision and the world of the wasteland while still heightening and elevating it so much. Um, so I would say that for me, they, they are kind of, I would say that they are on par as far as quality films, maybe with a slight edge to Road Warrior or to Fury Road, but ultimately the Road Warrior will always be my favorite among them. And I, I would urge everyone to please, please watch these movies and please enjoy them because even if you don't, again, if you liked Fury Road, you will walk away with a deeper appreciation for it. I think it's remarkable that 30 years later, after Thunderdome, beyond Thunderdome, that uh, Fury Road still has that DNA. Like, it is a Mad Max movie. It's not like a reboot. Like, I mean, uh, you know, there's all this lore, ignoring the canon and plot, you know, but like, it is, it is just another Mad Max movie. It picks up with right where it feels like Road Warrior left off, like thematically, tonally, just with better special effects. And more modern kind of filmmaking sensibilities. But while still remaining true to the practical stunt work. Yes, exactly. Are there uh, other Mad Max movies lined up? Like, is Furiosa going to happen? Or is this just sort of like got like production gossip? The Furiosa prequel, which I have to admit, as, as interested as, as much as I love Furiosa as a character, I'm skeptical about a prequel. Uh, but that is greenlit. That's in production now. Um, and Miller says that he also has two other Mad Max, like Mad Max centric as a character ideas down the road. He's in his seventies, so he's got to get to work on these quick, which again is all the more reason to watch these movies, to get these numbers up, pump up those numbers and make sure that these movies get made because no one else, no one else should direct them ever. It should only be George Miller. I think that also means you have to watch the new Looney Tunes movie because... Aren't the um aren't the 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 pale boys or what are the names? The, the war Fury boys, Road yeah, Club. yeah, they're in Space Jam. They're in the new Space Jam movie. Yeah, they're in that. <laughs> so Dave, you're getting your wish of a, of a cinematic universe akin to Star Wars or you know anything else. Uh, just, you're getting just your wish me over right now. <laughs> um, can I just say though, Dave, what you said is the opposite of gatekeeping. I feel like you were literally at the gate opening it, being like, please come inside. Please come look at this. So I don't know, but that's a really great I'm just thing. for people to think that I'm trashing Fury Road, which is a perfect film because I prefer this one, but they're, they're all fantastic. Uh, and Thunderdome is good and not fantastic, but the, the other ones are all fantastic. So watch all of them. Any any final thoughts on uh, the Road Warrior, on Mad Max in general, or uh, anything else before we wrap up for the day? I'm a big fan of the Fallout video game franchise, and so uh, that definitely, let's say, lifts a lot from the Mad Max franchise. So kind of like how I mentioned with Waterworld, of like, oh, they're like references that I didn't really understand before. Um, definitely feel that way with Road Warrior. Yeah, in fairness, this franchise did sort of design most modern interpretations of a post-apocalypse. Um, Dave, so we know, obviously, Tom Hardy picks up the mantle of Max. Do you think that Tom Hardy is the right actor for it? And and if not, who was it? Or could there be anyone else other than Tom Hardy? I'm reading the oral history of uh, 
Fury Road right now. That is the, um, what is it? Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, which is a really interesting book. Uh, Miller has gone on record as saying that early into the production, because the production took over 15 years, at one point they were, they, they'd considered Mel, but decided ultimately that uh, before the blowout, that it ultimately wasn't going to work. Um, and the first person that Miller had in mind, as a matter of fact, around about 2007 was Heath Ledger who unfortunately, as we all know, uh, is no longer with us. Uh, so that would have been interesting. I would have been down for that. As long as George Miller is at the helm, uh, I trust his instincts enough. I, I don't care who Max is. I think Hardy did a great job. But I think it could be just about anybody as long as you have such a visionary director at the helm of the story and the movie. So I, I just I, I implicitly trust Miller no matter what. So I will watch whatever he gives me and whoever he gives me as Max. Although it was initially hard to separate the character in Fury Road from Mel Gibson's performance. But uh, again, Hardy crushes it. So uh, I, I don't have a problem with whoever playing Max because he is you, such a mythic figure. What did you make of the tension between Tom Hardy, like that's detailed in the book between Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron? Didn't she claim that he was late to set like every day and that she was like that he was not taking shooting seriously as basically wasting people's time? Uh, I haven't gotten that far, but I do know about that, that, that dynamic. And I would say that, I mean, not in Hardy's defense, because that, it, that sounds like a very difficult actor to work with under those circumstances. Yeah. Um, it sounds like he sucked on set. <laughs> it does kind of sound that way. That being said, uh, even people that had worked with George before George Miller, the director while shooting this movie were like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, this doesn't make sense. This isn't going to be a movie. How we're shooting like five to 10 second shots at a time. Like, how is this going to come together into a functional film? And they were all wrong. It's perfect. And everyone has admitted that much after the fact. And and Tom Hardy has actually said with regret that he uh, he isn't fond of how he behaved on set given the incredible film that it resulted in because in part, he didn't really trust the process even though he was in the hands of a master like George Miller. So uh, again, nothing but praise for George Miller. One of the greats, I think probably the best show don't tell storyteller and film author of our time. Christine, as you mentioned earlier, uh, it's like a silent film in some regard. Mel Gibson, the star of this film has 16 lines of dialogue. And if the film was edited by George Miller himself without sound, so entirely visually based. And he has also famously said that he wants to make a movie that you can watch in Japan without subtitles. Like he just wants you to absorb visual information as narrative. And I think he is the best in the world at that. Um, so kudos to George. Can't wait for more. We'll see if they happen, but my fingers are crossed at this point. Before we go, of course, we want to uh, thank you all for listening. I want to thank my co-host for watching this movie because, damn it, if I have not been looking forward to this one for a long time. And, of course, thanks to the Movie John Podcast Network, a really great podcast network that hosts a suite of really awesome Philadelphia-based podcasts. A majority of them movie-based, but also one of them Formula One racing-based Still got to listen to that. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that one. Uh, but until then, you can find us through there or through our socials that uh, butter with that one on Twitter, um, which you might want to stay away from these days. Uh, <laughs> uh, butter with that on Instagram and Facebook, and of course, uh, butter with that podcast at gmail.com. All of them really great ways to get in touch with us and uh, keep tabs on what we're doing. We're going to be bringing you another desert film next week, but until then, 
Uh, of course, thank you so much for coming by. And uh, until then, have a good whatever. Just walk away. This has been a Movie John podcast.